Welcome to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. In today's special episode, we sat down with Rex M. Lee, cybersecurity advisor at MySmart Privacy. He helped shed light on China's cyber attacks on America, how it affects us in our daily lives, and what can be done to stop it. Let's dive in. Rex, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, Tiffany. Glad to be here. So recently, China's been in the headlines a lot, whether that's like, say, maybe a total war with China over Taiwan, but another big area is cyber. So we hear a lot about cyber attacks on America especially, but give us a sense of how widespread this is, especially in terms of Americans. Okay, well, uh, these attacks that you're hearing about in the news are all tied to um, unrestricted hybrid warfare waged by China. And this goes back to the 1990s. And what unrestricted hybrid warfare is, it's warfare that targets everyone where there are no rules. This includes targeting children, teens, business leaders, members of the military, members of law enforcement, elected officials, even the president. And so how is China able to get into these institutions, say whether that's government or business or even personal? Um, they're able to um, get into these institutions, uh, usually through um, insider attacks. Um, a lot of people wonder where cybersecurity attacks mostly occur, and about 90% of them are uh, associated with insider attacks. This means that it usually comes from an employee, even a company leader in the, uh, even a leader in the company that could be leveraged, uh, as well as the attacks could come from the supply chain that supports the company or the organization or a government agency, for example. And so how sophisticated or not are these attacks? For instance, some of the big ones we've read about in the news. Well, they're very sophisticated today. The, no longer are hacks coming in through traditional methods like telecommunication networks or even through email phishing. They still can attack through email phishing. They've advanced that to SMS texting, by the way. A, a text message can launch an attack as well. But mainly what we're, what we're seeing, nation-state hackers from China, which are apt groups or Russia, like uh, Fancy Bear, uh, Sandworm, and some of their groups, or Lazarus from North Korea. Uh, we're seeing these groups you utilize the Android OS, Apple iOS, and Microsoft Windows 8, 10, and 11 OS to launch in a wide array of attacks on networks that include ransomware attacks, uh, DDoS attacks, and man-in-the-middle attacks. They can launch just about any attack either through the operating system that supports a mobile device like a smartphone or a PC, um, and or uh, they can utilize apps. Google has removed over 300 of these types of apps and recently that could launch these types of attacks. Apple was compromised through their MDM, uh, app, uh, their MDM security platform as well, where hackers got in through the security platform and they were able to spoof the platform. They were able to spoof the uh, end user to the platform to get authentication tokens to be able to get back into the, uh, the security platform. And Rex, earlier this year, you had an article titled Smartphone App Users Are Data Mined Even When Not Using the App. So what exactly <clears throat> is the information that's being gathered on individuals? Well, you have to look at an app um, as legal malware. And that's the best way you can describe apps today. An app, whether it's a social media app developed by ByteDance, such as TikTok or Facebook um, or Instagram, 
any of these apps are basically legal they're basically legal malware that enable the developer to monitor, track, and data mine the end user for financial gain 24 by 7, 365 days a year. A single intrusive app enables the um, uh, enables the developer to collect over 5,000 highly confidential data points associated with the end user's personal information, business information, medical information, legal information, and employment information because the surveillance and data mining done by these uh, companies is indiscriminate, meaning that it's, they're not only collecting uh, consumer information, they're collecting every bit of information from the end user, including text messages, email, email attachments, calendar events, and so forth. A lot of these uh, app, uh, a lot of these uh, abilities come through uh, the app being able to, into what an app will do is it will interlink with all of the hardware on the device and the sensors on the device, such as camera and microphone, as well as sensors such as the accelerometer. So they can do audio, video, and physical surveillance uh, on you 24 hours, 365 days a year while uh, collecting those 5,000 highly confidential data points on the end user. What they are doing is they package that and they monetize it. But also as we're seeing in the news is that these tech companies are aligned with governments. So the, the information uh, a lot of times is ending up in the hands of the government. And Rex, in the beginning, you mentioned how this bigger cyber attack thing fits into China's hybrid or unrestricted warfare. So to yes. really defend against that, what can individuals do? Well, you know, again, you have to look at what's what type of apps you're using on your phone. First of all, countries like India have banned all of the intrusive apps from China. You can't get TikTok in India. Other countries have followed suit. Um, uh, the problem here in the United States is the U.S.-China tech lobby I say, really, the U.S. time the U.S. China tech lobby is a national security threat for these reasons. Um, the U.S. is one of the few countries that allow companies from adversarial nations to lobby their lawmakers through powerful K Street law firms. So, you know, when, when that's happening, I'll give you an example. ByteDance hired former Trump advisor and ACG lobbyist uh, David Urban, and they also hired ACG to lobby on their behalf. You remember a couple of years ago during the Trump administration, they were labeled a cybersecurity threat and a national security threat um, as well. Huawei was labeled a national security threat by the Obama administration and the Biden, I mean, the Obama administration and the Trump administration. Uh, and recently, Huawei hired Democrat strategist or former Democrat strategist, Tony Podesta. So they're hiring both Republicans and uh, Democrat uh, advisors and former uh, politicians or elected officials to do their lobbying for them. And they're paying them millions of dollars. Tony Podesta has made over a mil million dollars from uh, Huawei. And not only has uh, ACG and David Urban made millions of dollars from ByteDance, uh, ByteDance hired David Urban as one of their executive senior VPs. So when you look at what's going on, on one, on one hand, the politicians are saying that China's a threat. Uh, on the other hand, they're taking money from Chinese companies through uh, lobbyists, uh, uh, K Street law firms and lobbyists. Uh, so government's not gonna protect you. And this is why companies need to implement um, enterprise top-down uh, cybersecurity, uh, privacy and intelligence strategy, as well as individuals need to look at what's on their phone and start to analyze those apps. Um, I have a lot of this information up on my website, My Smart Privacy. 
that uh, people, they can go to at www.mysmartprivacy.com. And uh, the, all my articles that I wrote for the Epic Times on these uh, subject matters are posted up there. A lot of the interviews that I've done with Epic Times TV's Crossroads and China Insider are up there as well. And there's a there's a wealth of information there for people to access. And there's no charge for it either. I'm, I'm a tech journalist as well. So I like to post my articles up on that website. Given the kind of two-faced messaging coming from government, then right, so on the one hand, they're saying China's the foe not to work with them, but then they're taking these secret million-dollar deals. What is it going to take then? Is it for individuals to make their voices heard, for new laws to be implemented? Yeah, you know, I, uh, I uh, discussed this with uh, David Zhang on uh, uh, China Insider, and I went back in and I looked and I saw some of the comments in there and people asked what they could do. Well, I told them they should send a link to that interview, which was based on the U.S.-China uh, tech lobby. They should uh, take a link to that uh, interview and send that to their representative and ask their representative if they were elected to serve corporations on uh, on uh, uh, corporations through K Street lobbyists and law firms, or were they elected to represent the individual constituent? So the constituents need to make their voices heard, and they need to arm themselves with as much information as possible, such as an interview such as this or the one that I did with China Insider, and send those interviews to these lawmakers and ask their lawmakers, why why are they in Washington to serve the best interests of multinational companies, including those from Russia and China? Or are they in Washington to serve their constituents? It seems like when these uh, elected officials are appealing for our vote. They keep telling us how much good they're going to do for us, but then they go to office and uh, they become millionaires and their family members become millionaires. There's a lot of conflicts of interest going on in this uh, uh, matter. Uh, for, in the green energy industry, for instance, uh, Andre Hines, the stepson of John Kerry, represents a, a, a capital investment group um, or a venture capitalist group centered on green energy called Obvious. Uh, that's a conflict of interest because they stand to make billions of dollars on energy policies that his stepfather is influencing in the White House. Uh, we saw this with Hunter Biden in the Ukraine and also his uh, interests in China. And just recently, Polly Pelosi, the son of Nancy Pelosi, traveled with her on her trip to Asia and met with companies. Uh, so God only knows what his investment firm is going to be investing in in the future and what side, what, how much inside information these family members are gaining uh, through their uh, uh, elected, uh, through their parents or their relatives who are elected officials. Rex, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show. Thank you, Tiffany. That was Rex M. Lee, cybersecurity advisor at MySpark Privacy. And joining us after the break, Greg Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association and author of The New Total War. He touches on the recent buzz over House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan and what that means for this November, both in terms of our midterm elections and Chinese leader Xi Jinping seeking an unprecedented third term. That's coming up in just a minute here on China in Focus.
Welcome back to China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer. Joining us now, Greg Copley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association and author of the new Total War. He touches on the recent buzz over House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's trip to Taiwan and what that means for this November, both in terms of our midterm elections and Chinese leader Xi Jinping seeking an unprecedented third term. Let's dive in. Gregory, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you back on the show. Great to be back with you, Tiffany. So House Speaker Nancy Pelosi's recent trip to Taiwan still seems to be causing quite a lot of buzz, especially from the Chinese side. So the Chinese regime did end its, say, military drills around Taiwan, but many experts believe that's going to continue soon, probably. So how do you see all this tying up and maybe ending up happening in the future? Speaker Pelosi's visit to Taiwan was of profound strategic importance, made even more important by the panic and bluster from Xi Jinping and Communist Party officials. They painted themselves into a corner, threatening all kinds of dire consequences if the speaker went ahead with her planned visit. And she did that anyway. So uh, Beijing was forced to respond, forced to uh, escalate to the maximum level possible, which is with the, the, the so-called war games staged around uh, the uh, Republic of China generally, not just around Taiwan itself. Uh, this was partly a recovery for Xi Jinping. Uh, clearly, these these war games had been planned for some time by Beijing. This was not something which could have been organized overnight uh, because of the, the scope and nature and inter-service uh, capacity of all of these uh, exercises. So uh, they've, been, they've been thinking about this for some time. They probably would have found another excuse to mount those war games before the 20th Party Congress uh, in Beijing in November, uh, because it really was designed to show maximum pressure from Beijing on, uh, on the Taiwan question, which, on which uh, Xi Jinping has staked his, his career, uh, in essence. Uh, but the way in which this was all handled, knowing that Speaker Pelosi had been invited to Taipei even in April of this year, uh, so they had plenty of time to prepare considered responses to it, uh, but they did not. Instead, they, they, they returned to their old uh, methodology of threats, bluster, intimidation, the old wolf warrior diplomacy. And this, this has not served them well. Now, whether or not the, the uh, Chinese rank and file public see the panic uh, in Xi Jinping's camp or not is a, is a matter of conjecture. But the reality is that we know that President uh, and General Secretary Xi is in a fairly insecure situation, which makes him unpredictable and unstable. He could do things uh, in the run-up to the 20th Party Congress, but he does know that there are severe consequences if he escalates too much further. And I think one of the things the, the war games showed us was not that they were preparing an imminent physical invasion of Taiwan, but rather they were looking at methods short of a physical invasion. In other words, a quarantining of all trade into and out of Taiwan by being able to blockade uh, ocean and air links and the like. This would likely also be unsuccessful because uh, it, it would be absolutely mandatory for the US, Japan, Australia, even uh, even South Korea, to respond by saying that they would 
escort ships or convoys in and out of Taiwanese ports in order to maintain the security of trade and the freedom of trade in the, in the, in the Taiwan Straits. So uh, while Beijing thinks that it can tighten the noose around the neck of Taiwan, it's still a very difficult proposition for the Communist Party to entertain. If Xi Jinping does get this third term and kind of this return to Maoism, what would that mean for the Chinese people, firstly? And then secondly, to the U.S. and allies, would that change the way the Chinese regime deals with us? Yes, it certainly would. The, the, um, for, for a start, the Chinese uh, private sector economy would decline dramatically, even more than it's declining right now, which means that it is unlikely that the People's Republic of China would continue to be uh, a safe haven manufacturing source for Western consumer and, and industrial goods. So basically, uh, the, 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 the existing trend for the rest of the world to start looking for alternatives to supply from, from mainland China will continue dramatically. So uh, the, the, the question then becomes whether the, uh, whether the PRC can continue to afford to pay for the energy uh, and food imports from the West, particularly from the United States. Uh, and that will become problematic. So what we will see for the Chinese people, of course, is, is what, we're, uh, what we're starting to see now, increasing suffering, increasing starvation, uh, increasing deprivation, and of course, in response to that, increasing suppression by the party. And there also seems to be talks how, like, if Xi Jinping wins or whatever, there would also be an increased risk of, say, kinetic warfare. But I think you've mentioned several times before, you also have a book on this called Total War, right? So it's not just kinetic or military war, but something known as total war. So what's different? Like, what makes it total? Well, total war is a concept which has been evolving in coherent terms since Napoleonic times. And we saw World War One being the first war which uh, General Ludendorff of Germany described as, as total war. Uh, even he didn't understand fully what it meant, but he did think of it in terms of the mobilization of an entire society's industrial and economic capabilities so that they could uh, project power against their adversaries, the foreign states. Uh, by 19, the late 1930s, my partner, Stefan Personi, came up with a concept uh, of, of how total war would evolve as it did evolve in World War II, drawing on even greater resources of societies uh, and involving literally every man, woman and child as a de facto combatant in the war against the, their adversaries. Um, and you, you, so you get, and, and now, with, and the Cold War, because of the threat of, uh, and fear of escalation to nuclear levels, the Cold War uh, saw this whole concept being moved straight out into the civilian sector so that you minimized the use of conventional armed forces and maximized the use of every other form of warfare. Everything, in fact, became a form of warfare, including legal instruments, economic instruments, social powers, and, of course, particularly psychological warfare and propaganda and information dominance and the like, where you aim to win the ideological war. Well, with the collapse of, the, of Cold War One. In 1990, we started to see the rise of Cold War II, uh, and that was then, instead of being uh, dominated by the Soviets, 
uh, who'd collapsed in 1990, it became dominated by the Communist Party of China. Uh, and they, literally, they literally see every form of human activity as being weaponizable against their adversaries. Uh, so that includes so, all social contacts, it includes commercial uh, contacts and contracts and the like. It includes the manipulation of international organizations such as the United Nations and particularly the, uh, the sub-bodies of the United Nations, whether it's the World Health Organization, which was manipulated heavily by Beijing during the, the COVID crisis, uh, or the International Civil Aviation Organization, which, uh, which controls or defines a lot of the international air route capabilities and the like, which, again, Beijing has used to try to contain and constrain Taiwan and to expand the uh, air corridors available to Beijing and the like. So everything becomes a, a weapon of war. And Gregory, any last words you'd like to add? Well, I, I think uh, we have to, to look at the question is, uh, do we fear more the, uh, the collapse of the PRC or the collapse of the United States. Right now, we're seeing that both countries are so domestically embroiled in conflict that they, uh, they are, in a sense, fighting battles for survival. Uh, and uh, they're a long way from being resolved in, in either country. If we see Xi Jinping win, the, uh, in, the, in the November uh, Party Congress, then perhaps that would lead to the more rapid implosion of the Communist Party and the, the end of Communist Party rule in mainland China within a foreseeable amount of time. If Xi's opponents win and the economy is once again liberalized, then mainland China gets a new lease on life and perhaps lives to fight a, a few more years. Similarly, in the United States, if, if this coming uh, set of elections, 2022 and 2024, uh, uh, do not resolve some of the polarization, then, uh, then we have to ask the question as to whether the United States, even though it would remain the world's most significant, significant economy, whether it will ever regain its prestige and strategic leadership in the world again. And that means that what we would see is this entirely new global strategic architecture emerge. Beijing has been aware of this for some time. They say, look, the United States cannot be the world's hegemonic leader forever, and we will be there when it collapses to take over. Now, we might see the, if you like, the dysfunctional uh, results in both mainland China and the United States uh, coming to the point where a lot of other nation states will start to re-emerge. We won't see the return to the great bipolar world we saw in, in the Cold War. But what we would see is a return to a lot of balance of power uh, politics and a lot of um, uh, a, a, a whole host of medium and, and larger powers around the world. And that could be a very interesting uh, situation and one which would force us to look to the past to see how uh, that sort of uh, political framework, global political framework, uh, would would uh, would play out. Gregory, thank you so much for joining us. Great to have you on the show.
Great to be with you, Tiffany. Thank you very much. That was Greg Hopley, president of the International Strategic Studies Association and author of The New Total War. And in the first half, we heard from Rex M. Lee, cybersecurity advisor at MySmart Privacy. Thanks for watching China in Focus. I'm Tiffany Meyer, and see you soon.